Romans chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 26. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let me pray. Lord, um, we have need of you as we look at your word, as we study it, as we consider it, as we hear it proclaimed to us. We need you to illumine our minds, to turn the lights on in our heads so that we see the truth, so that we love it. Whether you soften our hearts so that we repent where we need to. We trust you um, in areas that we currently are not so that we rejoice in you and your promises and your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I find that we seem as people to enjoy being lied to a little bit, don't we? Um, We like it when people tell us a story about us that isn't exactly true, right? Now, let me give you an example. <clears throat> For example, when um, men, when your wives come to you and say, do I look good in this dress? Are these pants? Do I look fat? You kind of know that you're not allowed to answer, yeah, you're looking kind of big, <laughs> right? You kind of recognize at that point you're in trouble. She wants you to lie to her. Or, or I, I hear it, I, I want people to lie to me as well. Here's how it comes across for me. I hear people making the comment, I just, I just hate it when people talk about me behind my back. I can't believe they said those things about me behind my back. I wish they would tell me to my face. And I think to myself every time, I'm so glad they said it behind my back. I hope they never say that to my face because I don't want to know, right? And there is a lie There is a lie that the world and the flesh and the devil tell us that we also enjoy hearing. This lie is as old as the fall. It's the lie where man is exalted, where man or self is exalted, and where God is diminished. God is lowered. I I want you to think about the fall in the garden and its modern-day equivalents. God had given all things save one tree, all things save one tree to Adam and Eve. And Satan came to them and said this, did God say you can't have any of this? And how stingy is he? You deserve better. To which Eve replied, no, he didn't say we couldn't have any of this. He said we could have all of it, but we can't eat from that one tree because if we eat from that one tree, we will die. And then, then the great lie, the most delicious of all lives, the lies, the most destructive of all lives came. You won't die. You won't die. Don't trust God. Don't obey him. 
Look at all the enjoyment he's keeping from you. Doesn't that fruit look good? He knows if you eat it, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. Don't you understand you can be like God? You can assert your own autonomy. Be a law to yourself. He's holding back from you. You can have your best life now. Assert yourself. You deserve to be exalted. Look how it is desirable to make you wise. If you eat it, you can become a better you. God knows this, and he's helpless to do anything about it. Don't let this, his empty threat, hold you back any longer. You're a self-determining person, and you should use your will to break free from his rule and become all that you can be. Satan, Satan alone, was tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. But now, as a result of that first sin, the world system and our own flesh tempt us as well. You see, in the ultimate sense, Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, God is not enough. You deserve more. God's promises are not trustworthy. You need to take care of yourself. God is holding you back and trying to control you and keep you from all the pleasure that could be yours. You deserve to have it all now. It's all about you. You see, when Satan fell from the sky, he cried out, you can be sovereign. You can assert your own will. You can be like God. True freedom is breaking free from the shackles of his sovereign rule and taking control of your own life. And when this idol the idol that Satan offered us, the idol of autonomous free will, of self-rule, of self-exaltation. When this idol fell from the sky, we built him a temple and we fell down and we worshiped. And when God came walking in the garden, Adam and Eve hid. They fled. And when he comes pursuing us, we flee as well. It was as if Satan and our flesh cried out to us and said, you've done it now. Done it now? God is terrifyingly holy. You should flee him. He won't forgive you. You have no hope. God is not really gracious. He is not really merciful. And even if he is merciful or gracious, you're going to have to meet him halfway. So you're going to have to clean up your act before you let him see you. Go put some fig leaves on. You see, even in the midst of our realization that we've sinned against the holy God and, ju and justly deserve wrath, even in the midst of our realization about that, the world, the flesh, and the devil love, love to keep us focused on us. They love to tell us, you need to do something about it. God isn't really that gracious. It's precisely because we swallow this lie, this lie that is told to us by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is precisely because of that that we miss the magnificent promise of the gospel. 
we see the Bible in terms of, of a story where God essentially creates us and then commands us, don't eat that fruit, right? Don't eat that fruit. That's how we see the Bible story. And then we eat it. And then he says, okay, well, you're in trouble now, right? You're going to die. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you 10 commandments. Keep those. It's a second chance. And then we fail to keep those. Then he goes, oh, no, what are we going to do? We're in trouble now. And then God comes and says, I'll tell you what, one more chance. I'm going to send Jesus. All you have to do, your one good work is just believe in him. Ten, ten, ten good works were too many. One, one good work. Just believe in him. And then we fail to believe in him. We fail and we say, ah, oh, ah, oh, he will surely reject me now. If I don't have enough faith, then there's no hope left for me. That's not the Bible story. This isn't the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is not a story about us and our working to earn God's favor or believing strongly enough to merit God's grace. That isn't the story. The Bible story is the story of the gospel. It's the story that before time began, in eternity past, the Father covenanted with the Son to give him a bride, a church, a glorious gift, so that she would exalt him. And the Son covenanted with the Father to go, descend to earth, die for his bride. Save her, purchase her, rescue her, so that he could present her before the Father, holy and blameless, to the praise of God's grace. That's the story of the Bible. In other words, the Bible is the story of God's grace to us in Christ for his glory. It's a story about him and his relentless pursuit to glorify his magnificently glorious son through showing us immeasurable kindness and grace. That's the Bible story. Look at Ephesians 1. Russell read it, and I'm thankful he did. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Keep your hand there on Romans, and look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I want you to see the story. I want to pull back the veil of eternity, as Paul does here, and shows us what God planned, what it's all about. Right here, God planned it. The Father planned this. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us within Christ and every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. How did he do that? Even as he, the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, the Father, predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? Why, what's his will? To the praise, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, the grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved that's in Christ. The Father planned it, and Jesus accomplished it we're blessed with it in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Father planned it. The Son accomplished it. The Spirit applies it. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. You know what the story's about? The whole story is about the praise of God's glory, specifically the praise of God's glorious grace. That's what Jesus asked the Father for in John 17, isn't it? In his high priestly prayer, he says, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, the glory I had, the glory you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This whole story, this whole gospel, this whole word is ultimately about the Father bringing glory to his name and the name of his Son by making known to us to the vessels of his mercy, the riches of his glory, which he prepared beforehand for us. It is the story of God's free, unmerited grace, glorious and infinitely rich kindness. All promised to us, all promised to us in Christ before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, for our good and for God's glory. It is the eternal will of the Father to adopt his children. It's the eternal will of the Father to make his children heirs, co-heirs with Christ, heirs of God. We receive God. Do you hear that? We receive glory because God, because God purposed in eternity past to be gracious to us through Jesus for the glory of his name and the glory of his son. Look at Romans 8.17, since you kept your finger there, hopefully. Romans 8.17. I'll just back up to 15, actually. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. This glory that God purposed to give us in eternity past is ours, provided we suffer with him. 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, this is where the world, the flesh, and the devil want to sneak back in. And they want to promise you what theologians call a theology of glory. They want to tell you, you don't have to wait for these glorious promises. You can have it all right now. If you just believe enough, just generate enough faith and obedience, God will give you health and wealth and blessing. He will give you your best life right now. However, Paul gives us a theology of the cross. For Paul knows that the greatest, listen, and I want you to hear this, the greatest of all promises is that you are made like Jesus and therefore are a co-heir with him of all things, an heir of God. The greatest promise. Your greatest promise is that you bear his image, that you're made like him. Jesus gave us a theology of the cross, didn't he? He said this, you want to be my disciples? Well, you're going to have to take up your cross. You have to deny yourself. You will suffer. Birds have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to be my disciples? You will suffer with me because you will be like me. See, the road to glory, I said this last week, the road to glory is paved with suffering. Paved with suffering. But we see suffering and we think of it as a sign, a sign that God has spurned us, rejected us, hated us because of our sins, that he's now cursing us because of our sin, because of our lack of faith. And it's just the opposite. If you are a believer, suffering is a gracious gift from God. Being brokenhearted and poor in spirit is a gift that points us not to God's hatred and rejection, but to his love, to his favor, to his graciousness to do what? Make us like Jesus. To make us like Jesus. This is why Paul says of his own life, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is why the author of Hebrews can say with confidence, God disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines his legitimate sons for their good. It may seem painful at the moment, but it, it bears the peaceful fruit of righteousness, makes you like Jesus, and God does it to you because he loves you. Not because he's spurning you, That's why Peter can say to the church, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. All of this is why Paul takes up 
the topic of suffering in the middle of this incredible argument for God's absolute guarantee for eternal security. He does not want you to miss the point and think that somehow your suffering is demonstrating that you've lost that future glory, that you have somehow lost that promise, that your disobedience, that your lack of faith has somehow robbed from you the promise of God. He doesn't want you to think that. And so he deals very directly with the suffering because he wants you to know that God's purpose for you is that you will suffer with Christ so you'll be made like him so that you will receive that future glory. Thus his argument comes right in. Look, Paul's been making it clear from chapter 3 through chapter 8 that the Father chose to do what? Justify the ungodly through faith in Christ. Not the godly. Not the faithful. Not the obedient God justifies the ungodly. Makes it clear that God chose to redeem and atone for sinners through Christ. He chose to give us peace. He chose to put us into this grace, give us access to this grace in which we now stand. He chose to give us friendship. He chose to give us freedom from slavery to sin. And future deliverance from the presence of sin for those who believe. The Father chose to remove all condemnation and provide eternal life. The Father chose to send his spirits into the hearts of his people to empower them and help them and pray for them and to adopt us as his children and give us the gift of being made like his son through suffering. And to work all things together, all things together for our good. And to give us the promise of eternal glory. See, the Father chose to love us with an unbreakable and inviolable love from which we cannot be separated. And his purpose, his purpose will not fail. The Father chose to do this all because of his plan, because of his purpose, and his purpose to bring glory to the name of his son by his being gracious enough to elect us and call us and justify us and adopt us and sanctify us and glorify us in him will not fail. His purpose will not fail. You see, Paul wants us to understand that this gospel he wants to preach in Rome, as he says, the beginning in chapter 1, this gospel he so wants to preach in Rome, this gospel he wants to take to the ends of the earth, which at that time he imagined was probably Spain. This gospel of which he is not ashamed because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, for the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul wants us to know that this gospel is the gospel he wants to take to the world. It's because of the power of God for salvation. It's because of the free gift of God's grace in Christ for declaring the ungodly righteous. Because of this, Paul wants to know, we have a blessed assurance. We have a tremendous hope. We've done nothing to gain it, and we can do nothing to lose it. It was God's plan from eternity past to justify you in Christ. He is for you in 
Christ. No one and nothing can ever separate you from his love. God has eternally purposed to glorify his son and himself by showering, showering, pouring his grace upon his people and he will not fail to do it. You see, when you understand the grace given to you, the grace given to you is not measured, it's not measured by our knowledge of what to pray for. It isn't measured by our ability to make right decisions or to earn it. The grace given to you is not measured by the quality or quantity of your faith. The grace given to you is not measured by our good works or our ability to keep the law or our ability to live a godly life. The grace given to you is not measured by our ability to avoid sin or even by our ability to be ever faithful in trials. When you understand that, but that the grace given to you is measured, is measured by the infinite value of the life and death of Jesus, God's holy son. The grace is measured by the eternal, unchanging promise of the God who gave it to us. That grace is measured by the unmerited kindness or favor of God. The grace is God being for us in Christ. Then, then you will be able to sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. When you understand this gospel Paul is preaching, you'll understand why he can say with confidence. Why he can say with confidence, we know, we know that for all those who love God, for all those called according to his purpose, his eternally glorious purpose, for all Christians, in other words, all things work together for good. All things. So now I want to dive into verse 29 and show you that out of all of this, why Paul can say all things why Paul can say all things work together for our good. What's the base of it? Look at verse 29 of Romans 8. I'm going to start the actual sermon now. <clears throat> 29. See that word for? See that word for? That's a glorious little word. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For. For. The great pillar and support of the truth that all things work together for our good. The great pillar and support of the truth that all things work together for our good begins with that little word for in verse 29. The blessed assurance of our salvation, the mighty fortress for our soul, the infinitely weighty promise of our participation in glory, the unsurpassing treasure of our inheritance as sons is grounded in, is founded upon, is secured by this little word for. And all, and all that this word tells us about God. What does it tell us? It tells us five, five glorious truths. You ready? Five glorious truths. Five links in the golden chain of your eternal security, your assurance. One, God set his love upon us. First, God set his 
love, his eternal covenantal love upon us. What is, look at the word there. For those whom he, that's God, foreknew. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. For those whom he foreknew. What does that word foreknew mean? You know that word in the Greek, that Greek word for foreknew is used three times in the New Testament talking about God. It actually appears five times in the New Testament. Two of the times have a reference to um, men knowing what's coming because of various circumstances. Not foreknowledge like they know exhaustively the future and all things, but you understand the point. Three times it's predicated about God. Three times. Twice by Paul in Romans and once by Peter in 1 Peter. So what does it mean? Well, first we have to look at the grammar of this sentence. And we see two vitally important facts. Look there at verse 29. For those whom, those whom he foreknew, he also. For those whom he foreknew, he also. He foreknows those whom. His knowledge here, as Paul's using it, is a, of a particular group of people. It is not of everyone's free decisions in the future. It's not how it's being used here. Not being used that way here. Yes, God knows exhaustively all future decisions. Of course, all future occurrences. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Those whom he foreknew. And the fact that this is a particular group of people and not all people is found in the next grammatical point. Number two, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then go down to verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Hear this? All those he foreknows, he also predestines. He also calls. He also justifies. He also glorifies. This foreknowing here promises everything else. And if this is speaking of everyone on earth, then everyone on earth is saved. Further, we need to look at how Paul uses this same Greek word in other contexts. He uses it in one other context to confirm understanding. Look at Romans 11.2. Keep your hand there. Look at Romans 11.2. God has not rejected his people. So you know here, he's talking about physical Israel. Go to verse 1 to show that. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, and an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's just come off of chapter 10 where he's talked about the fact that God has hardened the Jews for a time a little bit. He's going to talk about that some more. And now he's saving the Gentiles. But then the question comes up, has God rejected his people whom he, what? Foreknew. Do you hear that? For God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You guys hear that? What do you mean? Didn't God know all the nations? He just foreknew them only? Yeah. He foreknew them only is what Paul's saying. Because Paul's point isn't about meticulous, divine, exhaustive foreknowledge of all things. Paul's point is to foreknow them is to love them. He knew them. You know, I can know Teresa, right? Or I can know my wife. 
right? There's an intimacy there, isn't there? I can know one of you, or I can know you. You understand the distinction? Use that word this way all the time. In context, Paul has said that God is now saving the Gentiles and is answering the question as to whether God has rejected ethnic Jews. Has he rejected his covenantal people? And Paul's answer is, God set his eternal covenantal love upon them. He has not rejected them. And those who are elect will be saved. The other use is in Peter. Peter uses it in 1 Peter of God. In 1 Peter, Peter uses it of God. Here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 20. Let's turn there. He says this. Jesus, it's the third and last use of this word, Greek word with regard to God. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake. Who foreknew Jesus before the foundation of the world? Certainly not us. Who then? God. And did the Father say, you know, um, I have a sense of what you might do in the future, Jesus. No, he knew him. He knew him. God knew him. God set his eternal, covenantal, fatherly love upon him. There's another Greek noun that's related to this one. It's used twice in the New Testament. It's a related noun. It's the word prognosis, right? That's used twice in the New Testament. And it's a related noun. Some people pick up and go, well, what about this one? Well, Acts 2.23 where it says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Look, if you're going to make the case that that's God knowing the future when he's just said the definite plan, he planned this. That's how he knows this. Again, speaking of God's sovereign and definite choice and plan to bring something about. It's used in 1 Peter 1-2, which is often used as the one text. It's appealed to as the proof that God elected, elects people or predestines them or chooses them based on looking down the corridor of time and seeing their future free choices. Why is it used that way? Because in some English versions... Some English versions, 1 Peter 1, 2 says this, that you're chosen, he's speaking to the exiles from Asia, and he says, to the exiles in Asia, you know, Asian Minor, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, etc. He says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. You guys familiar with that verse? The exiles who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God? Said, Look, they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. How are they chosen? How are they elect? Based on the foreknowledge of God. The problem with this translation is that that word elect or chosen in 1 Peter 1-2 is an adjective that modifies the word exiles. In other words, 1 Peter 2 is addressing elect exiles. Men who are exiles according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. These people are chosen exiles dispersed by the fatherly care of God. That's Peter's whole point in the text. The foreknowledge of God in Romans and throughout the New Testament is not speaking of the Greek idea of exhaustively knowing the future, although that is true about God. Foreknowledge is talking about God setting his covenantal love upon his people before the foundation of the world. It speaks of a deeply personal knowledge and love. Listen to how it's used of God in the Old Testament and into the New. Psalm 1-6, for the Lord 
knows the way of the righteous. Well, does, doesn't he know the way of the unrighteous? Sure he does. What's the word mean there then? He knows them. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Amos 3, 2. God speaking to Israel, the nation says this, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. What? God only knew about Israel? He doesn't know very much then, does he? Just that little tiny country, that's all he knew about, huh? Obviously, knowing here must refer to something other than exhaustively knowing the future, doesn't it? I knew you of all the net families of the earth. I knew you. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. That's who he knows. That's what he's talking about, Paul. Matthew 7.23, Jesus said, and I will declare to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. What, Jesus didn't know about them? Yes, he knew about them. He didn't know them. 2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands. I, I love this. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. You know what the seal on God's firm foundation is? The Lord knows those who are his. For God to foreknow us in Romans 8.29 is for God to send, set his eternal covenantal love upon us. And this eternal covenant of love being set upon us is the seal on the firm foundation of the gospel. Second, and I'm going to go faster to the next points, don't worry. Second, God chose us for glory as his children. Not only did he set his covenant of love upon us in eternity past, he chose us for glory as his sons. Look at what Paul goes on there in Romans 9 to say. Excuse me, Romans 8, say, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, for what? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. To be foreknown speaks of God's choosing or electing us in love before the foundation of the world. And Paul now introduces predestination because he wants us to know that God, what, what God has lovingly chosen us for. He has set his love upon you. Why? For what? So he could predestine you. He's taking you somewhere. Where is he taking you? What is it about? He's chosen us for a glorious future as his adopted children. That's what Paul says here. Paul says, Christ is to be the firstborn among many brothers, which refers back to our adoption. If we're his brothers, we've been adopted as sons, and thus we're brothers of Christ. This is the same thing Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Hopefully you still have that. Turn back there really quickly. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Look at verse 4. Even as he, God, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, do you hear that covenantal Love being set upon us, that eternal love. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Why? 
On what basis? According to the purpose of his will. And for what reason? To the praise of his glorious grace. See, Ephesians 1.11 says the same thing. In him, in Christ, look at verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. But you notice the parallel with Romans 8, 29 and 30? What, why did God do this choosing and predestining? Look at what he says. He did it so that we would be conformed to the image of his son show us grace so that we would be adopted as children we'd be brothers of Christ so that he would be the firstborn you know what that speaks of supremacy preeminence glory that's why I did it that's what he predestined us for God has purposed everything for his glory and our good do you hear all this God lovingly chose you to be conformed to the image of his son, to be one of his children before the foundation of the world so his son would be preeminent. You will be conformed to his image. You will be, you're a believer, conformed to his image. You are guaranteed to be made like him. Do you hear that? Guaranteed to be made like him. And you will suffer with him as you grow in holiness and are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Further, we're guaranteed that when he returns, when he returns, we'll be, we will receive a resurrected body like his. And what does 1 Corinthians say? And we will know him even as we are known. This uh, third point I want to make, third point, not only has he set his love upon us, not only has he chosen for us glory as his sons, he has unfailingly called us. Unfailingly called us. Look at what Paul goes on to say. And those whom he predestined, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Here's what I want you to get a hold of. This word called, this word called, is specific. It's not talking about the universal offer of the gospel to all men. Because if it was talking about the universal gospel of, offer of the gospel to all men, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That would mean that if God called all men, he justified them all, glorified them all, they're all saved. Because it's all guaranteed here. It's clear in the text. Those whom he called is talking about a specific kind of calling. It's talking about effectual calling. It's a call where God irresistibly and unfailingly draws us to himself. It's not a call given to everyone. Look at Romans 9, 23 and 24. Look at verse 23 and 24 in Romans 9. In order to make known, I'm going to start with verse 22. What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. 
Who does Paul say was prepared beforehand in eternity past for glory? Who was prepared in eternity past for glory? Those whom even us whom he called, right? Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This can't be everyone in the whole world. Why? Because verse 22, just above it says, there are people who are objects of God's wrath. And now he's saying there are some that are objects of God's mercy. And who are those people who are objects of his mercy? Well, those are the ones he prepared beforehand for glory. And who are those? Those are the ones he called us. The idea of calling runs throughout the New Testament. Jesus told the Pharisees, no one can come to me. Can come. Word of ability. No one. Universal negative. No one can, is able to come to me unless, here's your exception clause, unless the Father draws him. And the reason you don't come to me, Jesus goes on to say, is because the Father has not given you to me. Because all that he gives to me, I will raise up on that last day. Everyone given to Jesus by the Father, he will raise up. His guarantee. So everyone can't be given to Jesus by the Father unless you believe everyone is going to heaven. And the rest of the scripture speaks clearly against that. Paul referred to the church as those who are called to be saints and called to the fellowship of his son. Hebrews 9.15 says that all those who are called receive. Listen to what that. If you're called, you receive. You hear that? Called, receive. Not called, could receive. Called, you receive the promised eternal inheritance. Paul is saying all this to show you how absolutely secure you are. Absolutely secure you are. Now some people will say, well, if it's so guaranteed that God will save his people, then what's the purpose of evangelism? What's the purpose of it? Well, let me just say this for now, because I don't have a lot of time. God ordained the means as well as the ends. God said, I will save my people and I will do it through the preaching of the word and through prayer. Remember the same guy who wrote Romans 8 and 9 also wrote Romans 10 where he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how are they to call on the one whom they've not believed? And how do they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear if no one preaches to them? Blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. The same guy who wrote Romans 8 and 9 is the same guy who said at the beginning of Romans 9 and the beginning of Romans 10, my heart's desire for them is that they may be saved. Who's them here? He's talking about his own Jewish ethnic brothers. I pray that they would be saved. In fact, I would be damned, <clears throat> cut off from Christ, go to hell to see them saved. And he goes on to say the same guy who says, I'm going to give my life to preach the gospel where Jesus has never been named. What drove him to this kind of self-abandon for the gospel? What drove him to it was the gloriousness of the promise and the certainty, the certainty that God will save all those whom he promised to give to his son. Hear that? You know what that does? It gives me confidence in evangelism. I can't fail. I preach the gospel, and God will not fail to save everyone he's given to his son. Peter knew this as well. 
which is why he said this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why are you all that? So you can sit on your laurels and not proclaim the gospel? No. No. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's why. For not only does God, not only does God set his covenantal eternal love upon us, not only does God choose us for glorious children, not only does God unfailingly call us, for God declares us righteous in Christ. Declares us righteous in Christ. To be justified means we're declared righteous. Look what he says. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. To be justified means to be declared righteous. Forgiven for your sins and declared to be righteous, even though you're a sinner. Right? Because you're seen in Christ and he is righteous. We did nothing to merit it. We're the ungodly sinners. We're the ungodly sinners whom God declared to be holy. Why? Because Jesus paid our penalty. Because Jesus lived perfectly in our place. Jesus took our place in condemnation and gave us his in glory. Hear that? It's 100% free and promiscuous grace. Our righteousness is not found in our ability to be faithful. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. John Bunyan, um, a great preacher of the 17th century and the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, probably the most widely distributed book outside of the Bible that people actually want to read other than like Chairman Mao forcing everyone to read his book. You understand, in China, <clears throat> Pilgrim's Progress wrote the following about his conversion. One day, one day, as I was passing in the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. I want you to hear this. John Bunyan, here's a guy with an elementary school education who wrote arguably the most popular book um, in the history of the world outside the Bible, who was a tinker, who ended up in prison for preaching the gospel, of whom John Owen, probably arguably the greatest theologian to ever live outside of Paul or Jesus, right? John Owen said of him, I would trade all of my learning to preach one sermon like he did. Right? To be able to move men's hearts one time like he does. John Bunyan, this man, wasn't a believer. Had a rough life of suffering. He came to Christ and here it is. One day as I was passing in the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought with all, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say, there I say is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say he lacks my righteousness. For that was just before him. I also saw, saw moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. Now I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Hear that? That's the gospel. Jesus is our righteousness. The gospel is the free declaration of our righteousness in which God punished Jesus for my sin and will reward me for his righteousness. And if that's not enough assurance for you so far, Paul adds one more link to this glorious chain. One more link. God's promise of your glory is absolutely, undeniably, unfailingly, certain, guaranteed. Last link. Look what he says. And those whom he justified, he also, what? Glorified. See, Paul uses the, the aorist tense here. A past tense, speaking of something that's already accomplished. That's a weird way to speak about future glory, isn't it? It's already accomplished. Past tense. Those who are justified are also, those who are justified, he also glorified. Wait, your glory is coming in the future, isn't it? Yeah? Right, it is, right? That's what Paul says earlier. So how can he say, you're glorified already? Look, he's saying, our future glory is so certain, so secure, so guaranteed that I can speak of it as already accomplished. And there is in that one verb tense, of that one word, there is the only proof you need that if you belong to Jesus, you are guaranteed glory. Which is why Paul came to this climactic point in which he says this, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Will he who graciously gave us his own son not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who's risen, who's ascended to the right hand of the Father, who is ever interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of God? Who shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, it is this truth, that God is enough and his purposes never fail, that carries Christians through dark times knowing that God is working this for their good. He cannot fail to work it for their good. They should be assured that he will not fail them and that he is etern eternally for them, for he has staked the glory of his own son upon your good. Hear that? William Cooper, the great hymn writer, who suffered from terrible suicidal depression all his life, wrote, there's a fountain filled with blood. You may have heard that hymn, several of them. He trusted God's purposes in all of it, though he despaired often. And he wrote the following about his assurance in God. God's guarantee he'll work his good because he stoked, staked his glory on it. Listen to what he said. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works 
his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings upon your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence lies, for he hides a smiling face. His purposes, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let me pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word and its truth. We are thankful for the fact that you have made a promise to us that we are utterly secure, that we can know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose because you have staked your own glory, the glory of your own son on our good. And you have given us the greatest promise, which is to be made like him so that we would be co-inheritors with him of all things, of you. In this we rejoice. Give us strength to believe, to trust. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Pray this for your glorious son's name. Amen.